Generative pre-trained transformer models, or GPT models, have countless applications and are being rapidly deployed across a wide range of domains. However, using GPT models without appropriate safeguards can lead to leakage of sensitive data. This concern underscores the critical need for privacy and data protection. Skyflow GPT Privacy Vault prevents sensitive data from reaching GPTs. Amruta Mokhtali is the Chief Product Officer at Skyflow, and she joins us today. We discuss generative AI, how the technology is different from other AI approaches, and how we can use this technology in a safe and ethical manner. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is hosted by Sean Falconer. Check the show notes for more information on Sean's work and where to find him. Amruta, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. Good to be here. Yeah, so this is actually your second time here. I really appreciate you doing this. I know uh, you're not uh, feeling necessarily 100% today, so I, I, I like that you're you're soldiering through just the same to, to be here to talk to me. No, it's it's fun to be here. I think uh, anything for, you know, just having a really awesome conversation. Yes. So previously we had discussed, um, you know, running secure workflows over sensitive data. And to that, today we're actually going to ta- tackle, I think, probably the hottest topic in the world right now, definitely the hottest topic in the tech world, which is around generative AI and how to build with these technologies in a safe and secure way. And I thought a good place to kind of start to dip into this is to look at your sort of background in AI. So I know that you've previously worked on projects like Bing at Microsoft. You also worked on Einstein at Salesforce, but where did your background in AI start? Was that something that you studied in university or was this mostly experience that you gained in the workplace? Um, You know, it kind of organically started uh, in university a little bit, Um, not not on crazy AI, but when I was in university, one of my uh, main projects was building a matching algorithm um, to um, match kind of, you know, mentors to mentees and things like that. And it was not, nothing complex, you know, the basic combination and collaborative filtering and content-based filtering algos. But uh, that's kind of where it started, um, you know, just spiking my interest, working on AI. And then, um, you know, uh, it just got enhanced as I started going through my work life. You know, Bing, I worked with the Paraset team there. It was all about natural language processing, semantic machine learning there. Then, uh, you know, from there, I even went to Topsy Labs where, you know, that got even more enhanced because we were doing more things on the Twitter firehose. And then I jumped onto, you know, the Einstein world where we were now looking at several different algorithms for several different use cases. So it started kind of organically, uh, piked my interest and it's just continued through my career. So it's, it's been fun. Yeah. And with Einstein, what was the problem that you were trying to solve there? Was it around sort of something um, related to data analysts? Because that, that's, a, you know, built into to Salesforce in some fashion, right? Yeah, with, with Einstein, you know, it's um, it, it, Einstein's kind of a blanket term that Salesforce uses for AI. And if you think of, um, you know, Salesforce is everywhere into any business workflow. And it was all about how can we use AI to optimize business workflows and specifically what we were trying to do when we are thinking of like, you know, large corpuses of data in uh, BI or analysis uh, areas is we were trying to democratize data. 
because what happens is there are these all these data teams and we would always observe that executives and a lot of different folks who really need insights from this data and have to work on it have to send a request someone's going to go do some analysis it's going to take them a long time the analyst comes back and it just keeps going on and on and there's like so much inefficiencies there and AI is never really uh, given in the hands of every single person who needs it. So if you think on a larger level, it was all about operationalizing AI, democratizing AI to help folks get insights from their data, do predictions, do all sorts of, you know, intent and um, trends uh, because, you know, a lot of times people are looking for seasonality in, let's say, their own customer behavior, their product behaviors, their sales teams, all sorts of things, you know, looking at corpuses of data and tell, tell me, you know, what's wrong, what's right. So that's kind of the different types of problems specifically uh, we were trying to solve there. Yeah, and you must have had to apply sort of different AI approaches, I would assume, given sort of the diversity of data and problems that you'd be trying to solve with with Salesforce? Oh, yeah, totally. I think, uh, I don't remember the number. I think we did a bunch of acquisitions there as well as we built a lot of models uh, internally. And, you know, they expanded all the way from, you know, I think we are, uh, there was also vision, uh, of course, language and sentiment. Um, there were bots, of course, because we were trying to do, you know, personalized interactions, right, for all these um, queries and conversations that were happening. Predictions, pretty con uh, pretty normal and obvious uh, intent. So there were a lot of these different algorithms that were working. And was that expertise that Salesforce had in-house at that time, or did you end up having to essentially build AI teams in-house to solve some of these challenges? It was a mix, actually. There were a few folks internally that had the expertise and then we also acquired a lot of companies because when you're thinking of ai right there are different algorithms i mean there's regression models there's clustering there's different people use different techniques to solve the same problem so we acquired a lot of uh, companies and a lot of ai knowledge came from that a large part came in from that plus there was a lot organically and uh, yes that resulted in building you know ai teams right there yeah one of the things that you mentioned when you talked about sort of some of the initial thoughts around Einstein and motivation with it, around it was this idea of bringing AI into the hands of everyone. And I think that's something that we're actually like really starting to see you know, uh, with generative AI and in particular things like ChatGPT. And, you know, even, um, you know, a, a couple of months ago, I went to visit my parents and my dad, who's in his mid seventies, picked me up at the airport and started asking me questions about AI. So, like, it's on his radar at this point. So, I'm curious, you know, when when did you know, ChatGPT sort of first come onto your radar, and what were some of your first thoughts about it? Um, it's 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 interesting. It's uh, I, I have these conversations with my seven year old and my eleven year old now because she's like, oh, I did, I just searched this in ChatGPT. Um, but when, if, in terms of like when it came on the radar, right, GPT-3 was there for some time, like, um, you know, because of uh, the folks that I had worked with in the NLP world, that was already doing the circuit. So I think late 2020, uh, you know, 2000, I think last year, because I remember Christmas time uh, when, you know, a lot of chat GPT conversations were happening. And especially in Jan, or uh, I don't remember the exact date when it opened up. 
and you know every single person could try it out and i was like there you know someone's actually done what we were trying to do in einstein for the corporate world to everyone else out here so they can actually leverage uh, and do something we had actually when we were at salesforce we had coined the term called citizen data scientists um making every citizen a data scientist and i was like you know there's openai has done the same thing for every single individual here now each one of us are uh, citizen ai folks or whatever you want to call it so that, that's that's kind of when it uh, came up i i knew about gpt3 for some time and then it was just about uh, chat gpt where they actually created that interface with that changed everything mm-hmm. And did you see that as something that was, you know, as somebody who has expertise in the space and has worked in it a long time, did you see that as something like, this is groundbreaking or were you more like, oh, I, you know, I kind of seen this, they just, you know, threw a nice uh, like interface onto it? Oh, no, this was groundbreaking because, you know, I always believe technologies exist. AI is not new. What it creates uh, change and becomes groundbreaking is how you use it, how you apply it and how you give it in folks' hands. and this was groundbreaking and this was this was like this big wow moment you know we don't get a lot of these moments in the technology history and this was one of those and i was like this is going to change everything like this is going to change it's already changed how we do every single thing right now yeah yeah so do you think that you know as you mentioned like ai is not something new like even neural networks dates back to like 1957 lm since like the you know the 90s even uh you know the transformer technology was uh i don't know 6 or 7 years ago six, at google yeah, yeah yeah 10 years so, so it's not all new what so do you see the sort of like the what's been responsible for this like huge explosion in ai companies products interest from the general public interest from you know my dad uh is essentially this ui that was uh that open ai came out with that really sort of made AI just an everyday thing for anybody interacting with technology. I think so and I think it's over time a lot of things that have computed to the point where we are right now right. It all starts from even compute. You know when AI was invented it was extremely compute heavy chipsets and technology was not where we could actually run these models at such efficiencies in the kind of machines that we run today. so that has been a great factor in terms of you know bringing these to the market the other big piece has been data right over time we just have because a model is only as good as the amount of data you feed it or how you've trained it or how much data is be it's been trained on and things like that and i think all of these things have compounded to the moment that we are right now where not only do we have efficiencies from a compute standpoint we have the data and we have really well written and trained models on and on top of that what open ai did is you know exposed it to everyone else in a way that they can use it and in a way that they are used to using it because everyone chats now if we had done chat gpt maybe 25 years ago maybe it was it wouldn't have had this kind of effect that it has today but we are so used to using google we are so used to chatting with people messaging people and this, uh, you know the same interface now and of course you know whatever you say covid made us uh, digitally forward even like you know our parents and everyone else have become very technologically savvy across the world because of covid and uh, it's it's the amalgamation of all these things 
Yeah, yeah. So it, I, it, I think you're exactly right. It's really the combination of the scale of the cloud, scale of data, and a variety of different you know innovations that have happened in the space that led to this sort of moment in time where this is uh, it feels transformative. It feels like the birth of the internet or you know the first exactly. you know, smartphone or something like that. Yeah. And it's it, and I think it's going to have huge impact on the industry. And you know, I read recently from uh, McKinsey Research that generative AI coding support can you know help software engineers develop code thirty to forty five percent faster, refactor code faster, document code faster, you know, simulate edge cases, all this kind of stuff. So I'm curious, what before we start getting a little bit deeper into the technology, what are your thoughts on just the potential impact, good or bad, for you know people who are working as developers today? I always look at uh, innovative times like these as a great opportunity um, for developers out there. You know, there's so many statements being made around like, you know, now every 2x developer is a 10x developer and, you know, oh, you can reduce costs of developers now that AI is there. That That's all great. But I think now what I really like to think about it is every developer now doesn't need to spend time doing mundane things. They can actually spend more of their time doing interesting things that they want to do and start, you know, upskilling themselves or doing that, you know, 10% that they never got a chance to do. So, you know, that that's kind of how I look at it. Uh, with all these co-pilots and everything that's be, uh, that folks are using right now, efficiencies have just improved like anything. And it's all going to multiply and come downstream with the innovations. Um, that, that's, that's kind of how I feel. But of course, you know... Um, as they say, with great power comes great responsibility. So we we have to make sure that it's uh, it's getting used right. It's being implemented in the right way with the right controls and, uh, you know, thinking of it in the right way. Yeah, so I, I think that's a good lead in to start to talk about how some of these, you know, technologies kind of work and how they might be different than other forms of AI that we've seen in the past. So maybe a good place to to start that conversation is, what is generative AI and how is that actually different than other forms of AI that we might be you know, familiar with from the past? Um, so generative AI, to, the way to think about it, it's like a um, subset of all kinds of AI that are there, right? And um, when I was talking about like all these other AI pieces that I had worked on, right? Most of those AI models, they're focused on solving something specific, maybe doing some predictions, but all of that on existing data. While generative AI models, their whole purpose is um, generating new content, new data, right? That, that is similar to you know, what we humans have generated or you know, has been there before. So on a very high level, those are kind of the two key distinctions between, you know, how we think we've thought of all these other models, let's say even supervised, unsupervised, or reinforcement, transfer, all of those things, and the generative uh, pieces that are there. And it's mainly based on, you know, deep learning architectures and things like that. So large language model or LLM is a form of generative AI for essentially creating text. And that's, you know, what GPT is. It's a form of LLM. But how do these models work? Like, what is the sort of training process that leads to being able to uh, essentially generate something like, you know, a poem or you know, uh, response to a, a prompt that leads to several paragraphs describing some sort of phenomenon? Yeah. So 
a lot of these models, right, um, when the model is built, it doesn't know anything. And then you have to literally feed it a lot of information. And that's where they actually get what we, we could call, you know, natural language understanding and the ability to extract and, you know, comprehend meaning from text. And that's where you have to feed it a large amount of information. And the way you feed information to this these models is also, you know, in a specific format like you would do for any machine. So, you know, you hear about embeddings and vector databases and um, I won't go into the technicalities, but basically you're taking a bunch of data, you're breaking it down into um, into a way that a model will understand it, which is numbers or vectors, if you can call it, and then feeding it in. So you start giving it a bunch of data and what the model's doing is while it reads all of this information, imagine the huge corpus of information that, you know, a whole library, multiple libraries, if you can, if you want to really, you know, objectify it. And it's trying to understand which word comes after a particular word or which character or what comes after after where I am right now. And that's basically what every generative algorithm is doing, is trying to accurately predict what is the possible next thing that's going to come after what I have done right now. It could be like after an and. And all of this, while it's getting this data, it's also trying to understand. So this is where, you know, what we've known with uh, what, uh, you know, semantic algorithms and everyone do. Think of something similar where they are putting all of that natural language understanding in there. So that is, it's not just blanket, you know, after an and, there's a the, but there's a context, there's an understanding of what you've written and then what's the next thing that needs to write, be written down. So the way you actually do language models is build a model give it huge corpuses of data and train it. And then the glory of these models, and which is why it's huge right now, is you can actually take a model that has been trained on a large amount of data and then fine-tune it. What fine-tuning is, is basically after a model has been what we call pre-trained, you can give it some additional smaller data sets and say, you know what, you have a lot of this knowledge now I want you to take that knowledge and apply it to this particular topic or this particular subject and this particular type of data that I'm giving you. And then I'm going to be able to use you for these specific tasks. And that's what we are also seeing a lot happen right now where you're taking a pre-trained model or an LLM and then fine tuning it, giving it additional data, additional context and letting it uh, give you answers or generate information based on the topic that you're interested in. So I, I know I kind of probably went a little further, but um, that's that's kind of how you want to think about like how these large language models work. Yeah, and during the training phase, is there any form of like supervised learning in there where a human is involved with actually giving feedback about whether something makes sense or not? No, so that that's the big piece that... Uh, you know, when we think about privacy and, you know, the conversations that are happening right now is there is no human, right? It's all just machine. So whatever you are giving to an LLM, that's it. You can't, can't take it back. Um, and there's a lot of conversation right now around unlearning. And I know there's uh, recently I read that, you know, from a regulation standpoint, folks are saying if you 
leaked information to an LLM that you thought you didn't want to leak, you got to like disband that whole LLM or, you know, not use it anymore. And people don't realize the amount of money, effort and time that goes into training an LLM. But uh, there is no human involved. And what that means is there is no oversight. So privacy becomes a big concern. And all the information that you give to an LLM now, you have to be very cautious about what you're doing there. Because that information can get used at any point in time. You may say, oh, I gave it data. I'm not getting any answers right now. But six years from now, six months from now, two months from now, maybe you didn't get something. Someone else gets your information. So that that's one of the biggest concerns right now when you think of LLMs because it's completely unsupervised right now. There's no supervision. Yeah, and recently, you know, Italy had a temporary ban of ChatGPT. I think uh, in relation to uh, potential GDPR violations, and then Samsung also banned employee uses of ChatGPT because there was a different issue. It was essentially people were sharing proprietary code with ChatGPT and then asking, uh, presumably, for refactoring or you know, optimization suggestions or something like that. Yeah, totally. I think it's uh, it's it's all sorts of things, right? It's uh, it's basically whatever we have tried to prevent from humans to do. Now we uh, machines are doing it, and we don't know how to prevent it. And the best way is to make sure that you're giving machines the right information and not the wrong things. And this is exactly where you know we talk about privacy, and um, it's all about the data and making sure that you are not leaking sensitive information. Like in case of Samsung, right? If they had put some proper controls from the data standpoint, where let's say I'm an employee and I'm trying to give information to any AI, but they had a filter where if I gave something proprietary, it would automatically filter it out. Even if let's say I'm, I'm a good employee and I just made a mistake, a very honest mistake. But there was a filter that could take care of that mistake. And now I'm not leaking that to any other LLM so that I'm not leaking IP that someone else can actually benefit from. That's that's kind of where we need to go. Yeah, and I, I've seen a few approaches to a privacy and security in the space. And maybe we can kind of take each one piece by piece and break down you know, what problems it solves and maybe where the gaps are. Does that sound, sound good? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. So, the you know, one of the ones that I've seen people talk about, uh, and I actually had conversations at Snowflake Summit last month with some of the, the Snowflake folks on this, is that companies like Microsoft, Snowflake, and I'm sure others in the sort of public cloud space that are getting into um, generative AI and LLMs are proposing this model where it's essentially, let's train and run your own private LLM that no other company has access to. So you're essentially, rather than running that through a something like OpenAI's APIs, you're you know, essentially running that within your own cloud infrastructure. So no other company is going to touch it. So what problem does that solve and what are some of the, the limitations there? Yeah, I think, I think it's, a, it's a great model, right, for those who can do it. Because we're potentially saying, what we're trying to solve for is you don't want to share your learnings and your data with others. And this is this is a very common thing we do even without AI, where you know even SaaS products that are serving multiple customers don't share data across these customers, and that's that's what these enterprises want. Is like I don't want you know the intelligence from my data to be used by let's say a competitor or someone. So it does solve for that. It does solve for 
making sure what you are training, the intelligence you are creating with your own proprietary data stays to yourself. So it's isolating that part. So it's it's personal isolation and it completely solves for that. Um, but the limitations there are the fact that you're still giving it sensitive information. So even while you're keeping it all within your own company or within your own enterprise, you're still giving it proprietary information. You're giving it sensitive information that can be used by folks within your enterprise. And these enterprises are not small because, you know, let's let's be honest, it takes a lot of, you know, capital to be able to even do this because it's not cheap to create you know, these private isolated environments and privately train your algorithms. And it takes time to even fine tune these algorithms. But at the end of the day, the data is going. You're not preventing sensitive data from leaking into these algorithms and someone somewhere getting that information out and being able to use it in in ways it should not be used. So while it solves one problem, it has a large limitation as well. Yeah, so it sounds like essentially this is probably a fairly expensive thing to invest, uh, you know, resources into because you're essentially going to be running your own, uh, you know, LM cluster that is private totally. to your company. So you're talking about a fairly expensive cloud infrastructure to do that. Plus, you probably, you know, may have to build out a team to do that. And then on top of that, your, um, uh, you know, you, you're have a, a big challenge around, you know, how do you make sure that Joe that works in accounting has access to, you know, accounting information essentially through the LLM? Exactly. How do you control that, right? And then the other thing also, you know, the big thing that is there is there are so many models out there. Do you really want to confine yourself to one single model that you have privately trained? Because tomorrow there'll be another niche model that might be there for, you know, you to use for a specific problems. And now, you know, you're going to have to again go in and bring that model into your infrastructure and train it. So that's also another big limitation. And uh, I think the biggest one is also just governing who gets to see what information, ask what information as well. Yeah, I mean, that the the the, the model idea I hadn't even really considered. There's uh, there, you're right. There's a multitude of models. I mean, there's even applications that will show you how different models perform side by side to different prompts. So you can essentially choose the right model for the problem that you're trying to solve. So, you know, that that's going to be a pretty heavy investment for any sort of reasonable company to both run, manage that infrastructure, plus have the domain expertise to do it, plus essentially get, adapt to all the changes that are happening in the space. Exactly. And I think uh, I was talking to someone the other day and I told them, I'm like, it's similar to when we saw SaaS applications, right? Like every SaaS application has been built because it's optimized for a particular use case. They understand how that works. It's going to be the same in the LLM world. Everyone's either taking a foundation model and fine tuning it with a ton of data for a specific use case, or, you know, they're building new models for specific use cases. And, uh, you know, we, we've helped a uh, health LLM company kind of do that and, you know, help them train it um, by obfuscating some data. And we're going to see a lot of that. And you do want enterprises and not only enterprises, every single person should be able to leverage these things. So another thing that I've seen people talk about and I've seen some, you know, product offerings out there is to essentially fully redact or even replace sensitive data with synthetic data before 
the training step or fine tuning or prompting, wherever essentially the data is entering the model. What does this essentially solve or not solve? So, you know, completely redacting sensitive data from models um, sometimes will solve your problem of, you know, leakage of sensitive data and make sure that, hey, you know what, you're, you're not sending sensitive data to the model. It never sees it. It never gets it. But you can't just completely redact the way we do redaction on our end, right? You have to redact with a stand-in. And what I mean by that is you redact information, but you still have to tell the model saying, you know what, there was a name here. So the model knows that the redacted information was a name because then when it's trying to do its understanding, it knows that, oh, this information was about a name or a location or anything, right? So that that's kind of how you want to think about redaction. It's not like just the basic redaction that we do. And when we talk about synthetic data, you know, I've I've always had this <laughs> this notion with synthetic data. Everyone's heard me talk about it for ages. Is when you generate synthetic data, you're using AI, and AI models have bias, and the synthetic data that's being created is going to have bias. That is one part of it. The other piece is synthetic is not real. And when you are training these models, you want to give it real data so it can actually come back to you with a real answer to things, right? And I think that that is the huge power of it. And what you want to figure out is how can you do that in an effective manner, right? Rather than using synthetic data, why can't you just, you know, use, oh, um, basically do tokenization or, you know, stand-ins where, you can give it some information with context, and then when the information comes back to you in inference, right, you are now able to say, you know what, I understand this. This this was Amruta. I can I kind of, you know, put it back. So at the end of the day, you're not compromising an end user's experience or even, you know, the model's understanding on things, but you're doing it in a safe way. So they're okay, both synthetic and redaction to a certain point, but it doesn't really help us get the power of uh, LLMs the way we really want to use it. Yeah, so it sounds like from a fully redaction standpoint, it can you know solve some problems, might be necessary in certain you know situations, but you're losing essentially the contextual information, which is part of the power of the model. And then the synthetic data, so much of model quality is essentially the quality of the data, but if you're you know, you hear people talk in the AI space of like, you know, garbage in, garbage out. So if you're exactly. you're lowering the quality of the data, then you're lowering the quality of the model, essentially. Totally. And I, and you don't know. And synthetic, you know, the same in a lot of times when you're thinking of like the amount of data that's there, there's, you know, collisions also in the synthetic data that you create. So it, it just completely would confuse the model at some point. Hmm. Yeah, that would be bad. <laughs> so there's also... You know, a bunch of these companies that are really focused on specifically like protecting ChatGPT, which is where, you know, you saw the bans from Italy. We saw the bans from Samsung were specific to ChatGPT. And I, I believe these work by, they're typically like a Chrome extension that monitors what your employees are essentially, check, you know, pasting into ChatGPT. It's almost like, like you're putting a firewall around it. And uh, it, you know, it, it feels a little bit, you know, half-baked to me because, you could use some ChatGPT competitor or even run open AI APIs on your local host and get around the copy and pasting policy. So there seems to be no way of really stopping people from doing something like that, from you know, copying an internal email into one of these systems. I guess, what, what are your sort of broad thoughts on this? 
it's very true right i mean you you cannot you cannot prevent and it's it's i always tell people there is a very powerful tool out there and you are blocking people to use it they will figure out a way to go get it it's like a kid during halloween right you're going to tell them do not eat any candy but they're going to figure out a way to sneak in one so i i think i always say you know give people the power but make it such that they can safely use it because don't you want each of your employees to kind of get more efficient with gpt have all your you know kids and parents and family and everyone do it so i think the chrome extensions and all of that sure it's kind of a bandaid solution you can remove it at any time and go around it and i i don't think that's kind of the right approach sure you you can feel safe maybe you know 10 20% of the things that had to happen won't uh, bad things may not happen but the rest is going to happen when there is something that has to go rogue it can go rogue so that's that's not something that's completely going to solve it the way you want to solve it is truly put uh not a firewall but a filter as we've been talking about right as someone types anything or copy pastes an email and sends it to gpt let it go but make sure that you know you're able to remove all the sensitive stuff from there let it go and let it come back with a response that this employee can use in a way that they can use it and replace all the stuff that you've removed while it it went to the llm with the real information and i think that's that's kind of what i feel um is the right approach when you're trying to use these uh foundation models or you know uh, products such as chatgpt so you mentioned a, a couple of things through this conversation uh you know the idea of essentially like filtering also i think uh tokenization so are those the those two things essentially the way that you know we we do this the right way is this a way to keep things private but essentially useful for lms Yes, I I truly think so, right? Um I think there are like um you can do things three ways that I say. So, for example, when you're training a model or even fine tuning a foundation model. Um based on the use case, you want to redact um you know, do what we call one way redaction or remove it and put some stand-ins to make sure your model knows what was here. or you can do one way pseudo anonymization which is you know tokens and you know this is not llm tokens we are talking about uh, which is I'm very careful when i use the term tokens when it comes to ai but these are standards for you know amruta becomes um, you know 1 2 3 4 name hyphen 1 2 3 4 7 8 or something like that so that you know the model knows that there is something here and um, then the third piece is also reverse reversible uh, pseudo anonymization right so when the when i trained the model or when i maybe even gave a prompt to the model with a lot of context because that's what folks are doing right now and using it right i can do prompt engineering and i can send a bunch of context and do attention mechanisms to make sure that even a foundation model is able to give me a very contextual answer but what we can do is in that information you basically pseudo anonymize the whole thing you stand in token send it and then you de- reidentify it so replace all of those pseudo anonymized tokens with the real data in that whole flow so then the end user gets you know the 1 to 3 abc is amrita when it's coming back so i think those are the three key kind of ways i think is the right way to use data 
with AI and LLM and all of that today without, you know, compromising sensitive uh, data as well as giving the power of AI to everyone. Yeah, and, and without having to run your own version of private. <laughs> of course. <until> <laughs> Not breaking the bank as well, right? Because <laughs> uh, those GPUs can uh, run up a number. So maybe we can take a specific example. So if I yeah. do something like you know, I type in uh, into an LLM, I send in a prompt like, where was Sean Faulkner born? So in this case, you know, Sean Faulkner is my, you know, identifier. So what happens to that? And then sort of what ends up getting fed into the LM to, to generate the response? So when you're typing in, you know, um, you know, where you are and everything. So in that case, Sean Faulkner and the location that you're in is going to be replaced by Sean Faulkner becomes name ABC123, uh, where you are becomes location XYZ, and then that goes into the model. Now, the model is going to take that information. Let's say I, I you know, decided to send you a package based on where you are, and I said, you know, send Sean Faulkner, who is in this location, these pieces, tell me what's the closest restaurant to him, and stuff like that. And it's going to come back with some information to me saying, okay, these are the places and these, these are the uh, things that you want to send. And then as it comes back in the UI and changing Sean, uh, the one, two, three back with Sean. So what's happened is in the prompt, I've replaced the sensitive data with pseudo anonymized standards, sent it to the LLM. The LLM has not seen any sensitive information. It's generated a response, returned it back to me, and I have taken that response, taken all the pseudo-anonymized pieces in that response, and re-identified them with the plain text or real information, so that as an end user, I'm still getting a real response. That makes sense. Yeah. So essentially, you're you're filtering the prompt before it reaches the LOM, and then on the response, exactly. the response goes back out through essentially the reverse filter that takes the the identified data re-identifies it. And how does, you know, when we were talking about the challenge with the, the private LLMs of controlling access, like how do I make sure that, you know, Joe at accounting sees accounting information, but, you know, Susie and customer support doesn't have that level of access. How does that work in this sort of filtering um, uh, process? It's a great question, right? Because you, you also, when the data is coming back, you want to make sure that, you know, the right person sees the right information. And that's where governance and policies come into picture, right? So this is where when you set up specific policies on specific roles and users saying, hey, you know what? Uh, Joe in accounting doesn't need to see my SSN. Um, then even if an LLM is coming back with a response, which has a token that I'm going to now re-identify as an SSN, as I'm re-identifying it, I'm going to mask it for Joe. Because based on the policies that have been set on the data, he's not supposed to see the SSN. He's maybe able to see only the last four of the SSN. So the response where you're re-identifying the pseudo-anonymized data is also re-identified based on the policies that have been set based on who gets access to what data and where. And this is also very awesome when you're thinking of regulation, because one of the things that, uh, interestingly, I was having conversations uh, two days ago, is folks have not thought about how localization and data residency is going to play into LLM. 
Because let's say I have a model in the US, but I'm feeding it information of citizens all over the world from places all over the world. I'm not going to train different models in these specific locations. That data cannot leave that particular location, nor can a US employee see the response from an LLM that includes information or details of someone who's in EU or somewhere else. And those are also the places where these governance policies will come into play, where I can, as I'm re-identifying it or as the prompt's even going in, I can make sure that some of these things based on policies that have been set are blocked. Mm -hmm. I see. And then how, so you were talking about a number of things here around, you know, governance, sort of this filtering approach, tokenization, uh, you know, localizing this information to to make it so that you can run essentially a central version of your of your model that's descoped from things like data residency. So, what is or how does this, I guess, relate to the work that you're doing at Skyflow and some of the things that you're doing with uh, you know companies around the LLM space there? I think this is uh, this is exactly what we are trying to solve for, right? Uh, going with my whole original mission of giving, sh making sure give, we give power to everyone, but give it in the right way. Um, with with Skyflow, what we are doing is we already have a privacy platform, right? And I think that made it easier for us to build a solution for LLMs on top. And what we are doing is we are giving the ability for folks to de-identify the data that's going into LLMs and de-identified whether it is training, you're building your own model, you're fine-tuning an existing foundation model, any of that. Additionally, we're also giving them the same ability to de-identify information, the prompts that are going in. So all the interfaces, most commonly right now folks are doing, you know, conversational interfaces is where they are starting to experiment and being able to redact information or pseudo-anonymize it in a way that it does not reach the model. And when it comes back, we are able to re-identify it, right? So you tokenize, you de-tokenize. And as we do that, we also have a very, very um, extensive fine-tune access control layer that allows us to apply those policies and governance things that we were talking about when folks re-identify the data. So th those are kind of the big pieces that we are providing. And another big thing that comes with this, because we have the privacy platform, is regulation and compliance. Because we, you know, data is data. It's not different when you're giving it to an LLM or you're giving it to any other system or information. And you have governance and compliance to adhere to. So th those are kind of the two big pieces. And then um, one of the third thing we built as we identified, you know, the use case similar to what you had mentioned earlier around like say Samsung or anything else is there might be information that uh, enterprise or a company thinks is sensitive for them, which may not fall under our standard, you know, sensitive fields as we know, you know, PII, PCI or PHI. And for that reason, we also created this concept of a data dictionary where someone could go in and say, hey, you know what, um, all these other project names, or you know, if anyone's talking about this particular person, like you, know, you want to redact all this information, and they can put that as well. So we can make sure that any interaction is completely safe. And that's, that's kind of what we're um, helping a lot of uh, LLMs and uh, 
different companies solve for. And as I had mentioned earlier, you know, one of the uh, companies that we are working with is building out a very niche health LLM, um, which, you know, initially they're going to put out there to, you know, help, uh, for example, um, nurses, what they do in post-op or anyone like that. And what we've helped them do is take all the hospital data from select hospitals, all the doctor notes, you can think of like all the different kinds of doctor notes, like you have prescriptions, you have someone just writing a report and take all of that unstructured data, identify where the sensitive information is and then pseudo anonymize it with stand-ins and then send it to their LLM so they can train it. And um, we also in the process certified the uh, de-identified data set to be substant, uh, you know, sufficiently de-identified. So there is no, you know, HIPAA concerns or anything like that. So that, that's been super exciting, you know, uh, being able to create uh, that pipeline for them. And then there are a few other uh, customers we are currently working with who are trying to build out uh, conversational interfaces, you know, to be able to build that assistant that's taking very sensitive information. You may think of it as, um, bill, mortgage documents, um, legal documents, maybe bills and things like that, and being able to process it and give answers to an agent that's maybe helping a family or something and not leaking all that information into an LLM because these companies we are helping don't have deep pockets, so they're not going to be able to run a private instance and train their own algorithms. They're all using public algorithms uh, or LLMs that exist. So for them, it's uh, we're able to create um, a layer that can make sure that they're not compromising the sensitive information of their customers. Yeah, and I imagine for companies that are, you know, they're not even sure what they're going to do in the space, but they want to start experimenting. You know, they're not going to start day one with a, a private LLM anyway. They're probably going to start with, you know, essentially existing APIs or off the tool, off the shelf, open uh, or uh, open source LLMs that exist. Exactly. And I think, you know, even, um, I mean, it's, I, I'll wait to see this, but everyone who's going to start training private LLMs, they'll just be like, oh, why is my LLM that I privately train not performing like this other person's LLM that they privately trained? And, you know, there's going to be all of those, you know, my model's better than yours situation that's going to start happening. Yeah. And the, the dorkiest, nerdiest of fights. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned uh, uh, in terms of compliance is the idea that uh, you know data is not different for an LLM. You know, it still needs to be compliant. But I think the big difference is that, and you, we touched on this earlier, is essentially it's just way more complicated because it's not like data sitting in a database somewhere. It's it's some representation of this data that's been aggregated in a model. It's not like you can just go easily you know delete it or something like that without boiling away our model. Yeah. Oh, totally, totally. Uh, you know, it's it's funny you asked me this question. Um, I was, okay, bear with me. I was trying to explain this to my daughter and one of the metaphors that came up and she really understood it. I was like, here's a whole rack of books in the library. This was when we were a library. Go find out in which book do they mention your name? How are you going to do it? You know, that's that's the exact same problem that you have because today we get DSR requests from customers, right? saying delete all of my information and we have to go and figure out in which database, which log, where I have saved the customer's information and go delete it. How do you do that in an LLM? 
Yeah, or it's like delete the concept of a cat from your brain. <laughs> like, h- how do you even do that? Like, how that's insane. There, there is a lot of research and a lot of work happening right now in unlearning, and I'm very curious and interested to know what what happens there. I'm sure someone's going to come up with you know some genius way to do it, but right now we don't have it. There is no way to forget. There is no way to delete. What are you going to do? You've given someone an LLM, your social security number, it's gone. Sorry. It knows it. You can't just take it back anymore. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, Amrita, I think that's a good place to to leave it. Uh, and I want to thank you so much for coming back. This is uh, such an exciting time to be working in, I think, technology in general. But at the same time, it's also really important that you know, we we take a moment to kind of slow down as an industry at times and, and think about the potential privacy impact investments and things like generated AI have and how we can still innovate, but do it in a way that protects our customer data or, you know, protects our intellectual property. Totally. And uh, thanks for having me here. I think it's, it's an important topic and uh, I'm always very passionate about, you know, making sure everyone's using the power of AI, but in a responsible manner. So let's make that happen. Awesome. Well, thank you so much.